I'm eight inches away. If I hold still for eight seconds, my shirt will catch fire. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Track driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths that people take in life. If you would like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the Patreon page for Half Hour Intern. It's where you make a per episode donation to support the show. And uh, we could really use support to be able to continue the show long into the future and continue cool episodes like this coming into your ears. So that is at patreon.com slash half hour intern. On to today's episode. Today I interviewed Josh Simpson, who is a glass blower, and he is not just a glass blower. He is one of the best glass blowers in the entire world and one of the most renowned glass blowers in the world. He has been doing it for over 45 years and uh, strangely and interestingly enough is basically self-taught, which we will tell that whole story, which is such an interesting and crazy story for how he got started glass blowing and where he kind of like earned his stripes and everything. And, uh, and then we'll go over some of the techniques of glass blowing and some of the more difficult high uh, high level techniques that he's doing nowadays and uh he has had a couple of pbs specials done on him one of them follows him through this whole process of trying to make a over 100 pound glass globe sort of sort of just crazy world um that is just absolutely fascinating to watch the documentary and he tells um some of the process of making that planet and the difficulties of doing that um in in this interview as well uh all in all just a really interesting interview a really interesting guy and uh without further ado here is glassblower josh thanks so much for coming on the show well, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get into the inner workings of glass blowing and how you do it, and you give us this great audio uh, tutorial on the whole thing, I would love it if you could tell us the story of how you got started glass blowing. I watched a couple of documentaries that you were in, and one of them, um, you got to talk about your history and how you got started. And I just thought it was so great and so awesome, your whole history and backstory with glass blowing. So could you tell us that really quick? Sure. So I was a student at Hamilton College in upstate New York. I was uh, I was a senior at Hamilton College with one required le- uh, course left to graduate. Hamilton had this deal in the early 1970s and late 60s where they'd let you take the month of January to do anything that you wanted to do, provided it had some academically redeeming value. Eventually, my senior year, I decided I wanted to learn how to blow glass. I had heard that there was a glass blowing course at Goddard College up in northern Vermont. And um, so I arrived at Goddard College and I was quickly surprised to find that there, in fact, they had dismantled their glass studio. So there was nothing there. Oh, and, man, uh, what the hell? And yeah, so this is like pre-internet, so it's not like you could have just Googled that and found out or anything. No, and it it, it totally sucked. And uh, beside that, I was I decided that I could easily live in the back of a pickup truck for a month. And uh, so, But it, it's cold in Vermont in December. And um, I realized that I was going to have a month of, of just being cold and doing nothing unless I 
figured something out. There were bricks and supplies at Goddard College, and it quickly became apparent that if I built a glass furnace that they'd let me blow glass. Only, of course, I'd never built a glass furnace, and I'd never taken a glass class. <laughs> and uh, But I did know something about building um, ceramic kills, and so I built my best approximation of what a glass furnace might look like. And it was a terrible furnace, but it actually worked for about three weeks. And uh, so um, actually a couple of other students helped build it, um, took a case of beer and a whole night to do it. And uh, and so we started to blow glass and there was no teacher there, but I sort of had the a general idea that you needed to gather molten glass up on the end of a blowpipe. And that's what I began to do. At the end of the month, um, I had to go back to Hamilton, but I barely felt like I had scratched the surface in learning to blow glass. And so I did something that my parents thought was beyond radical. Um, I dropped out of Hamilton College and I rented 50 acres of land for $22.50 a month. I came back home to my parents' house and I bought Dacron sail canvas and I sewed together a teepee and I moved back up to Vermont and and by spring, by March, I had a teepee to live in. I set up that on the land that I'd rented and I began to build a little studio that was 12 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet tall. And... Uh, and I figured it, since I built my own glass or built a glass furnace at Goddard that I could do it again. And that's exactly what I did using um, recycled bricks. And um, so by April or May of that year, I had this tiny little glass studio. I mean, you know, telling the story, it's almost hard to believe, but this is exactly what I did. It's amazing. It makes you realize like the the path that you're on in life, how much of it these decisions need to be made just at the right time. And it's like they almost kind of come to you, you know? It's not like solely like you're just making them, but these things get laid out to you at the right time because obviously doing something like that in your 30s or your 40s is insane sounding. But when you're 20 and you're like oh yeah, I'm just going to buy this uh, canvas to make a teepee and throw it on this land. It's like, why not? You know, like, why (laughs) not do that? And it's totally insane sounding now, but um, that that set everything in motion for the entire rest of your life. It's incredible. Well, I I, I even took my entire life savings out of the bank. That was $306. And I I used it to... uh, buy cement and uh, to pour a, a floor in the bottom of this uh, or in, on the floor of this studio that I built. And I used the rest of the money to buy a tin roof to go on the top. And and uh, all of the other materials were just sort of found or borrowed or bought, uh, actually not bought, but I got them from uh, farmers uh, who had barns that or buildings that they didn't mind me taking down. Anyway, I began to make glass. Exactly a year later, I uh, I returned to Hamilton College, and um, by that time, my parents had kind of run out of money. Hamilton waived 
this amazing story. They waived tuition, but they wouldn't waive room and board. And so I returned to Hamilton College, and uh, on the back of my pickup truck, I brought teepee poles and my teepee, <laughs> and I set up my teepee in the forest behind the college. And I returned in Jan, or actually at the end of January, uh, a year later, and uh, I would ski into school each morning, and and I finished my one required course and graduated. Um, but after I graduated, I went back to Vermont and uh, and continued blowing glass there until about nineteen, let's see, nineteen seventy four, when I had to leave the land I was on. They wanted to sell it. 50 acres of land they wanted to sell for $5,000. But I just didn't, I had no way to get that money. And so I had to leave. Um, and instead, I went to live at my grandfather's house in Connecticut. And uh, I built a, another small studio there. Um, and from 74 till 76, I worked there. Um, and during that time, I began to actually build up real business records. And so people, a bank, for example, could see that I actually had, I was selling glass by <clears throat> making stuff in Vermont and driving south from Vermont to towards New York City. And I'd drive through different towns and look to the left and right and see if there was some place that might sell my work. And I'd just stop in and try to sell things. That's that's how I That's how I began. I love it. So let's uh, let's go back just a little bit, and I'd like to kind of analyze uh, your development of this. So you you lived on this land for a year, kind of isolated, um, and built your own your own studio, and were kind of teaching yourself to make glass at this time. Um, I'd love yeah. to know you, what your thoughts are on how taking that route and, and the fact that when you went to that one college to take courses, courses were no longer available. And so this is what you ended up basically doing instead was spending a whole year of kind of teaching yourself to blow glass. Um, how did that, do you think that that kind of changed the type of glass that you make today, the type of glass that you started making in the years after that? And do you think that there was sort of a value in being isolated during this learning phase rather than having somebody else tell you this is the type of glass you should make, this is the way you should do it, this is the way it should look. Yeah. Um, to say that I was living off the grid is is like, I mean, I was really off the grid. I mean, there was no, <laughs> there was no grid to start off with, but I was left up, uh, I was left entirely to my own sense of how to teach myself and how glass blowing is actually done. I had never seen it done. Um, and, and I had no external influence on design, save ex except, uh, I don't know, seeing, uh, ads in a newspaper or something like that. But, um, so what, what happened was it allowed me to really develop my own techniques and my own style and my own sense of design, um, in a way that, that, that would be almost impossible um, today. And if I had gone to graduate school or I had gone to a factory to learn how to blow glass, I would have been making someone else's work. Or if I'd apprenticed to somebody, I would have been making somebody else's designs or learning uh, techniques 
from someone else. And I don't think I would have been able to develop such a a unique and different style of work. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking of the, the book in the movie, the jungle book where uh-huh. like if, if a boy like Mowgli wants to go into society, they'd be like, why aren't you wearing a shirt? And why are you doing all these things? You know, like he doesn't know that he's that different. Was it strange for you when you uh, later on met other glass blowers and you sto- you sort of saw their techniques and they saw your techniques and were, were they very different? Like the types of things that you guys were doing? Well, yeah. And actually, to be honest with you, there were things that there were simple solutions to common glass blowing problems. Like you make something, you've got this uh, stainless steel tube. Actually, I had iron tubes, but and on the end of that hollow tube, you gather this molten liquid and you shape it. Well, I didn't. At some point in time, you have to take the piece that you've made off that iron pipe or that stainless steel pipe, and you have to transfer it either to get it off and cool it, or you have to get it off and switch it around so you can work on the lip. I had no idea how to do that. And literally for six years, I struggled with that problem. I used a, you know, I tried to cut glass with a hacksaw and I, I would pour water over it and which would shatter it, but it wouldn't do it very evenly. And I once, uh, literally six years after I, I started, I, I watched somebody do the most simple motion, which was to squeeze it with essentially a tweezer, to squeeze it for a moment. And the cold tweezer uh, propagated a tiny little crack and it broke off perfectly every time. And I don't know how many hundreds of pieces I had lost because I just didn't know that simple trick. So really after after the fact, I mean, there were lots of tricks that I learned that that other people had known for, you know, 10 centuries that I just hadn't managed to figure out by myself. So I have to say that I learned a lot by myself and there are things that I do that are very unique, like the way I gather molten glass um, um, is, is pretty unique, but, but, more i learned a lot by watching other people and and so i got in fact i got more by watching others than they probably got from watching me yeah so you got to get some more of the uh the traditional technique things down that uh that were really useful but still kind yeah. of hold on to your own art style exactly what i got out of out of being you know off the grid was was a unique style a unique way of thinking about stuff and a, a pretty unique work ethic. Um, when I say that, I, I, you know, in some ways, when I look back, I think I was almost the Bobby Fisher of glass blowing. Bobby Fisher <laughs> was this chess player who was, who was pretty um, mono. I mean, he, he was totally into chess and I was utterly and completely lost in glass blowing. I worked I, I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that I, I worked literally seven days a week, 365 days a year, probably for five or six years. Um, I I would I might stop, uh, you know, to visit my parents for an afternoon, uh, but then I'd be back at work. And it wasn't because it really wasn't because I had a 
a strong work, work ethic per se, although I do. Um, it was more that I was just really insanely fascinated by this very challenging material. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some of that challenge. If you could go over some of the basics of glass blowing with us and things like how does the glass get its color and how does it get its shape and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Glass is uh, one of the most elemental of materials. It is essentially just sand. If you take, if you go down to the beach and, and shovel a bunch of sand into a bucket and throw it into a furnace, it will melt at about 3000 degrees and it will have the most classic Coke bottle green color imaginable. Um, and the green color, if you have very pure sand, it, it comes out to be, uh, it looks like clear glass. Most people, in fact, virtually everybody adds a flux that helps that sand melt. So it brings the melting temperature down to uh, all the way down to around 2000 degrees and from about 3000 degrees. And uh, but so just sand and a flux and then a stabilizer like lime and the fluxes can be anything like, uh, well, uh, lead will is a great flux. It's sucks for the environment, but it makes a very pure glass or a very beautiful clear glass. Um, there are also fluxes like bone ash. That's literally uh, animal bone burned. Um, bone ash can be a flux. So can soda ash. That soda ash is a major component in laundry detergent. So, um, and you can also use borax. Borax makes uh, a glass that borax flux sand and borax make a uh, glass like pyrex um okay so you're saying that the flux not only brings down the temperature that it needs to fire at but it also will impact the color of it as well it doesn't impact the color but it does impact the melting temperature and the working properties of the glass so i use uh, a glass that takes sand soda ash and lime which is a stabilizer and that gives me clear glass if you want to make color in glass, you need to add some metallic oxide. So if you just take beach sand, it's contaminated with iron. There's iron all over the earth. And, um, and so if you just take rust from a steel girder and throw that in with your glass, you'll get a beautiful green color. But you can, any metal, uh, whether it's uh, copper or cobalt or silver or manganese or molybdenum or even rare earths like neodymium and and gold uh platinum all of those uh, well actually platinum does isn't such a good colorizer but but any metal will make a color in glass and uh, you you need to take i use i extensively use uh silver as a colorant and it accounts for all of the blue colors and reds and yellows and uh, i just change uh, how i use that silver in my glass so sand soda ash and lime make clear glass adding any metallic oxide will will introduce color the only problem with introducing a metallic oxide is that everything that heats up cools down everything that heats up expands as it cools it contracts so if you just have clear glass, it expands at a certain rate. And as it cools down, it, 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 it contracts uh, 
let's say, 95, 10 thousandths of an inch, a, a tiny little bit. But if you add a, a colorant, a, a metal like copper to the glass, and if I added copper carbonate, I'd make a beautiful turquoise blue color, but it also affects the linear coefficient of expansion of the glass. So the glass that I've added copper to, if I put it and mix it with clear glass, the two sometimes have a different, they, 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 they cool and contract at different rates and they'll shatter. Mm. And so you have to sort of adjust the formula of the colored glass and adjust the formula of the clear so the two stay happy with each other. And that's, that's where you get, glass is so weird because you need to kind of be, uh, well, a chemist would be great, except they're, the high temperature part of it adds a certain amount of alchemy to the whole process. So right. um, you have to be an artist, but then you have to be a technician as well at the same time and a, and a, and a scientist to some extent. This strikes me as one of like the top five hobbies that were probably helped out by the internet. I just can't imagine how much due to those, those variables that you're talking about, having forums online would help out with other people that have already used the, uh, the different metal or whatever other sort of additive that you're trying to use. And they just say, yep, this one works with this. Yep. This one works with this versus back in the day, the only way to figure it out is just trial and error yourself and having a lot of things crack and go all funky on you. Yeah. And, and actually there, there is the addition today. You can, it is possible. There are folks in New Zealand and there are some folks in Germany who, um, who are kind of like me, they, they have a small operation, but they make colors that are, are formulated to be compatible with sort of a standard clear glass. And that's one thing that has happened during my time or the last 40 years or so. Although I, uh, I kind of like melting my own colors because I have learned by ridiculous trial and error and making horrible mistakes and losing whole batches of glass um, and and sometimes months of work. Um, since sometimes if you don't get the compatibility just right between glasses, everything looks fine in the morning after it's cooled off and you think everything's good and you, it, but it can be months and then you'll, a uh, piece will develop a crack and shatter. <laughs> so it's, it, it it it's it's terrible when that happens because in general it doesn't happen the cracking doesn't happen until you after you've sold it to somebody and they uh, and they well it's always it's bad form wow and, so it, it's continuing to contract for a long period of time after it's well, out of the yeah, fire yeah or it, it it may have contracted enough but it sets up a strain that can eventually shatter the piece so uh. fortunately I feel like one of the things I've learned over time is to that hasn't happened in a number of years to me, and it. But it's just lucky because usually, if somebody gives me money for a piece, I spend it pretty quickly, and then having to give them their money back is 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 generally traumatic. <laughs> yeah, you just give them back the new thing that you bought with the money. <laughs> right. So let's talk about um, 
the planets that you make and the other kind of celestial based art pieces. So I'm going to put up links to all kinds of stuff on the post for this on half hour intern. So, um, sure, and I can I'm, probably send you some photos too, if you'd like. Oh, but. perfect. And so, yeah, I'll put those up in, in the links to, um, the documentaries that were about you as well, um, which are just great. People should really watch them. And I, it, on your website, you can see how much of your art pieces are, are really kind of like celestial based and, um, like some of the, uh, like bowl plate type stuff that you make are just breathtaking. Like it looks like you're just looking out into deep space. It, it does like beautiful photo of a galaxy or something. Um, right. so I guess talk about your inspiration for that. And do you have like a lot of ties to astronomy? What, what makes you make things like that? It, you know, as a kid, I, I, uh, my parents hated it cause I just read inordinate amounts of science fiction and uh and which they consider to be you know utter trash to read and uh but i'd i'd be totally lost in in science fiction books and so i had a pretty lively imagination i also grew up in the time when they selected the first seven astronauts um and i watched that whole process of uh, Mercury and Gemini and Apollo and the the moon landings and for me that was and, and not and and after that uh, Landsat ph- photography and after that uh, Hubble and Chandra X ray observatory space telescope uh, photos to me are and not to mention Star Trek you know <laughs> and 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 to me expressing some of the wonder of the universe and and how amazing it is especially being inspired by uh telescope photos or landsat photos of the earth or of other celestial bodies uh, other planets uh, has been an inspiration to me the other thing is that i live in western massachusetts on a 30 acre farm and Glass furnaces are really a lot like farm animals in that they have their own personalities and they need to be looked after uh, day and night. And so I don't have to go out and uh, and go to the milking parlor and deal with the cows each night. What I do do, though, is for many, many years, um, I'd have to wake up at one or two or three or four in the morning to check on a furnace to make sure that the flame pattern was right and that it wasn't getting too hot or too cold and and in doing that um it it's amazing living on a hilltop i live about almost a thousand feet above sea level and my farm looks down the valley and there there have been times when i'll go out at night and just the sky uh it's a perfect dark sky and there other than a million stars i've seen Incredible aurora borealis uh, in the you know, the northern lights and thunderstorms coming up the valley, um, just sort of amazing celestial phenomenon, which, uh, you know, you can think of waking up at one o'clock in the morning and having to check on a furnace. You can think of that as a horrific chore or if you, it's something you have to do every night, you kind of just kind of get into seeing what, what the sky has in store for you. Um, and sometimes it's just uh, low hanging clouds and that's it. Yeah. But, but, uh, and what better thing to try to recreate? I mean, there's no 
there's literally nothing more beautiful in the world than than nature itself and natural phenomena like aurora borealis and things like that so why why not try to recreate that at the time in 1971 72 73 um people were not very aware of art glass or one of a kind art glass things and so where I couldn't sell a vase for much money, maybe 10 or 20 bucks if I was lucky. People could justify owning a unique set of handmade wine goblets. And, and so I could sell those for six or eight or, or $10 uh, for a pair of them. And, and, but I began to melt silver in these goblets and, I realized that they re- I called them actually my my first ones that I made I called them New Mexico because um it reminded me of looking at a perfect sky in New Mexico in the desert and uh and what was interesting was um when I moved here to Massachusetts I had to get my mail uh and I usually get it once a week uh at the post office and I drive down on Saturday morning, take my trash to the dump and, uh, and pick up the mail. And one day I was in the post office and this person who had bought wine goblets from me, uh, you know, stopped me and said, you know, last night we were drinking wine out of your goblets. And, and suddenly at some point we realized we weren't drinking out of wine goblets. We were drinking out of the sky. I just looked at him and I just thought, oh, Lord, how much wine had he been drinking the night before? But, but it did make me realize that this utilitarian object, this this thing, a goblet, could represent something much more than just a, 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 an object or a thing to drink wine in, that, it, that you could actually see he actually began to see the sky in the side of these goblets. And, uh, but it made me realize that I could make objects that were meant to be something else or meant to evoke a feeling of something else. And so I found that to be particularly true in making uh, bowls and platters, which when, when you look at a platter of mine, you can easily imagine a Hubble space telescope photo or uh, of a, a great nebula or stars or, or uh, a perfect night sky. And how do you even begin to tackle something like that and making something like that? So we've kind of gone over adding certain metals to the substrate to change the color of it. Um, but how are you getting an effect where the entire color of the whole thing doesn't change? Rather, it's like, okay, the outside portion might be blue, then it kind of fades to green, then there's this huge orange streak that goes across the whole thing, then it's this other thing over here. How do you get these multiple different colors in very specific areas of a piece? Yeah, I'd like to tell you that, but then I'd have to kill you. Uh, <laughs> Trade no, secrets. No, no tru- tru- truly, it's what I have is... I. Have, I have several furnaces going all at once. One of, one of them is a, clear, a, gla- a furnace full of clear glass. Then I'll have a second furnace that might have one uh, color of uh, cobalt, manganese, uh, chrome glass, which ends up being a dark, dark purple color if you were able to sort of hold it up to the, to the sunlight. And, and so what I do is I take a gather of clear glass and then I, I will literally melt 
silver, either metallic silver or silver bromide or silver chloride or silver iodate, um, a silver salt on on the surface of that clear glass. And by controlling how it's melted and and how much heat it's exposed to, and also very important, what sort of flame in the furnace uh, it's exposed to, that is a flame that is perfectly matched oxygen and and gas, uh, propane gas, or is there more gas than the flame needs, and that 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 makes a smoky flame, but also changes the changes the uh, the sort of the oxidation state of the silver. And so, when I I can change the oxidation state inside the clear furnace, so I've got clear, then uh, silver. I mess with the silver, and then I'll take a gather of dark uh, purple glass over that. And then on the outside of that next layer of purple glass, I'll melt more silver. Or I might gather, I have a third furnace uh, that's called the Heisenberg furnace because of the uncertainty of what happens inside that furnace. Uh, (laughs) It's my experimental furnace. I have three crucibles inside of it. Every single time I ever melt glass in that, it's always an experiment. Um, I I try different formulas. Um, But I'll take a gather of the, uh, the glass out of the Heisenberg furnace uh, or one of the crucibles there, and that might have streaks introduced into it, and um, and then I can gather clear glass over that. So I'm making basically a a sandwich of of things. So I'll take clear silver, purple glass, then uh, a, a silver glass over that, and then clear glass finally over that. So it's layer after layer after layer built up, all in in a size at the end it might be only the size of a football on the end of a steel rod but then i begin to blow into that rod and and it becomes not a football but more of a basketball shape uh, round and then at the at the side opposite from the blowpipe i can flatten the bottom a little bit just uh, so if if you had a basketball that was not fully inflated, in fact, deflated a little bit, it would detent on the bottom. And uh, and so I've got a flat bottom. What I'll do then is take another steel rod, a solid rod, and gather some clear glass out of my clear furnace on the end of that, and then stick it up to the bottom of this basketball shape, and then I'll break it away from the blowpipe, and thereby switching around so that the opening that was against the blowpipe is now flipped around and and I'm holding it by the bottom on this pontile rod. It's called a pontile rod. It's just a steel rod. Then I have to heat up the top of the piece in another furnace called a glory hole. And the glory hole gets super hot, 2,500 degrees or hotter sometimes. And so I could heat just the, the upper lip of this piece and I'll take uh, and take a pair of shears, scissors and cut it's hard to imagine cutting glass but it cuts just as if it were a piece of cardboard or something uh, when it's hot and I'll cut it to make it even on top and sometimes I'll take another gather of uh, an, an opposing color like red glass and drip it along the lip so that there'll be a uh, 
a bright red lip wrap uh, or lip color. And then I've still got a basketball shape held by the bottom, but now I've got an opening at the top. And what I begin to do is heat the whole body of this basketball shape more and more and more and gently expand the opening until it looks more like a bowl. And then I have a bigger glory hole and I will uh, heat the whole piece super, super hot and then spin it, literally spin it on the end of my blowpipe and centrifugal force will force out the lip and it becomes this round disc. It's kind of fun to watch. So Josh, in these times when it's going through the expansion, so you mentioned the first time it's in a football shape and then you blow on the end of the blowpipe and it expands. Then later on, you mentioned it was in kind of like a basketball shape and then you get it to expand again. Then you have this last part where you're spinning it with centrifugal force to get it to expand again. Um, Is there an element of surprise for you or have you done these things so many times that you can really anticipate the way that the colors are going to shake out? Like, is there, you know, what colors you've put into this thing, what types of glass are there, but when you start to blow it, do um, like, again, let's say you have a piece that looks like the Milky Way galaxy or something. Do you have any sort of estimate going into it, kind of how these colors are going to shake out and, and what form of a galaxy they're going to look like? Or is there a big surprise element for you um, to how the, the final colors lay themselves down? I have hopes and prayers for every single one that I ever do. <laughs> and, but I guarantee that every single one is a surprise. Every one. And, and what makes it even more amazing is that I'll spin these open and uh, until the moment it's spun open, I have no idea what the inside looks like. It's like opening, uh, it's like opening a geode for the first time. Um, but I'll spin it open and then this thing is screaming hot. It produces, um, well, let's put it this way. I'm eight inches away. If I hold still for eight seconds, my shirt will catch fire. Oh, that cannot be comfortable. And and so it's hot. I usually wear Kevlar sleeves and gloves that protect me from that. But sometimes, sometimes the uh, my shirt sleeves will catch fire underneath the Kevlar, and uh, which which doesn't burn as easily. But yeah, every time I open it up, it's a complete surprise. And that's actually what makes it so crazy interesting to do, and also so frustrating. Have you ever gotten badly burned doing this, or is it, is that a common thing in glass blowing? You know, I don't really get burned very often anymore. It's happened, um, but you know, the funny thing is the way I get burned. If if nowadays is uh, if I come out to my studio and and uh, um, or if I've been working making a platter or a vase or something else. And I have all these tools, these steel tools that I use. They kind of look like, uh, 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 I call them jacks, but they look like sort of uh, tweezers. And so I'll put the tweezer down and then I come back 20 minutes later and I think that that tool is cool. It's still as hot as an iron is. And, but, and if I pick it up by one of the places that might be hot, that's where I'll get burned. Touching the glass, actually, you can touch molten glass for a moment. It just slips off your skin because the oils in your skin and the moisture in your skin turn to steam, and so it just slips off. Hmm. 
Um, I think holding a piece of glass in your hand, it would be like a slippery pumpkin seed or something like that. Of course, you'd be burned horribly, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's it still not recommended. You. It would it wouldn't stay with you very long. Yeah, and and occasionally I'll I'll uh, wet my finger, just put my finger in a, in some water, and I'll just uh, just touch the surface to clean off some dust or something like that. But but that's that's a momentary thing, and uh, and you it's to your own peril if you stay there for more than a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that you're really well known for making are these beautiful, beautiful planets. Um, yeah, yeah. And they are absolutely amazing. And the entire second documentary that I watched, that again, I'll put a link on the website to, um, that PBS did, is about you um, trying to make a planet that was over a hundred pounds and, um, spoiler alert for everyone that's going to watch it. You succeed. You're, you are able to do this and, uh, you're the first person ever to do anything like that with like regular hand tools and just regular old school classic methods. Um, so I, in this whole process really documents a lot of the challenges and struggles that you had. Um, but I'd love to get your take on that some more. And, and what, what were some of the anticipated struggles that you, that you thought would come up when you were dealing with a hundred pound ball of, you know, trying to grow it and grow it and get it bigger and bigger and get it over a hundred pounds. Um, and still just, you know, turning it on the end of a blowpipe, like a regular small piece of glass. And then what were some of the unanticipated struggles that made things really difficult for you that you just didn't see coming at all? At some point along the way, I uh, had been asked to give a series of lectures at the Corning Museum of Glass in Corning, New York. And one of the questions that kept coming up for some reason was people would ask me, you know, what's the biggest one of those things that you've ever made? And and uh, I had been asked to make uh, the largest one for a Japanese company, and that had been about six inches in diameter. And, um, and I, I just, in, in response to somebody's question at the museum, I just said, oh, I'd love to make one that weighed a hundred pounds and, uh, was a foot in diameter. And, uh, but the, it, it was just sort of the, a flippant answer to a question. And, uh, but, but as I was leaving the museum, I got stopped by the, uh, the director of the museum of the Corning museum, uh, David uh, Whitehouse and and uh, he asked me if I would if, if he if they commissioned me would I make a hundred pound planet and I I agreed to do it and without really thinking about the ramifications of that how difficult it would actually be to make such a thing and uh, so there were there were just a, a zillion technical problems uh, some of them pretty mundane but that could be solved with money one was that I knew that it would take a long time to cool an object like that. And, uh, and so I needed an electrical generator because there were power failures at the time. And if I had a power failure, then it would be likely that um, my glass would cool too quickly. So I had a generator put in. And, and that, that, was, that was actually quite a project to do. And then, uh, and then I realized that to take a 12-inch or 13-inch or 14-inch diameter gather of glass out of a furnace, I'd have to rebuild a furnace, which then took weeks and weeks to do to take a furnace apart and rebuild it, cut the steel, and 
and build it so it had a 16-inch by 16-inch opening. Uh, and then uh, I had to build, I knew that a, a blowpipe is this five-foot-long piece of pipe, and then you put gap, molten glass on the end of it. But imagine what it would be like if you took a, a, a two-by-four and you started piling cinder blocks on the end of that two-by-four and started walking around with it for the next uh, four or five hours. What would that feel like? Oh, it'd be impossible. And and so I had to develop a little, in essence, a little cart that had two rollers on the top of it so I could roll the blowpipe on top of it and and move the whole cart around the room as I needed to work on. Well, on and piece. even the blowpipe that you, was custom and was very, very heavy duty. It's like literally everything had to be altered in some way and like built, like re-engineered. Like the amount of engineering that you had to do to be able to make this happen was incredible. Yeah, it was really crazy. And, and you realize that in order to take a gather out, in order to take a gather out of a glass furnace, you have to hold the blowpipe in your hands, reach into the furnace and keep your hands back pretty far because the furnaces are like dragons. They come out and bite you with flame and and then take a gather and then lift that gather up and out. And so I needed to build a blowpipe that was much longer than anything that I'd ever had before um, in order to the physics of it, to just be able to lift a hundred pounds of glass out of the furnace I needed a, a blowpipe that was about seven feet long. And uh, so, yeah, there were all these practical things that I had to think of ahead of time. And even after I, uh, even after I thought everything was right, um, I had, there were a couple of times when I had to lift the whole hundred pounds of glass, but I had developed a, a bar that two guys could help me with one, one person holding either side of the bar, the blowpipe in the middle of that, the very first time we tried it, it bent the bar and uh, partly from heat, but I, I, I never imagined that a, a steel bar could bend like a toothpick uh, or just like a piece of little piece of wire yeah. with that much weight on it. So, so there were just things that accommodations that I had to do, but actually once all those were solved, the real challenge was, there were all these physics issues, but once that was solved, I had to make something that was actually interesting to look at, which turned into a real challenge. I made, I mean, I, I think I made 14 hundred pound planets before I got one that was really nice. That's, that's incredible that you had to go through that. Like I can't, I can't imagine the undertake. I mean, everything you had to do to just make even one of them. It's crazy that you did it again and again and again and again. And I mean, this was an 18 month month project. And uh, actually the fact that PBS did a documentary on it really only amped up the pressure because, uh, you know, I, I'd let them know that we were going to work on this. They'd come out with a whole TV crew. They'd mic me up and, uh, and then we'd start working. And and uh, aside from the fact that, you know, I sort of felt compelled to like have have taken a shower and have clean hair and not look like, <laughs> not look like a vagabond. Um, there were other issues like I, I had a crew helping me and they were all, all my, actually I had Jonathan Winfisky and Ed Branson and, and 
a bunch of guys working for me who had been my apprentices over the years, and I got them to come back and help, um, even though they had their own studios by that time. And it was really wonderful to work with them. But but with the PBS crew there, I, I have a microphone on me, and so there'd be somebody in the background, we'd make a mistake, and somebody would go, oh, shit. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. Cut, cut, everything. <laughs> but we couldn't stop. It just was this horrible thing for PBS because they had to work around, you know, people, you know, not even realizing they were swearing in the background. Yeah. So I would love to know your perspective on what it is like being one of the best people in the entire world at your craft. Um, I... It's interesting. Like I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this have watched the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi, and like he's one of the best sushi chefs in the entire world. And uh-huh. oftentimes, whenever you get a glimpse of someone who's the best at what they do, it's it's not this thing where like, oh, I'm sitting on top of the mountain and and I'm I know I'm just nailing it every day. They're still, they're almost more cognizant, it seems like, of little screw-ups or this or that. Like, you are probably one of the top five people in the entire world at manipulating glass. Do you feel like that when you go to make glass? Like, are, are you, do you recognize that fact? Absolutely not. I mean, I, to be honest with you, I never think, I never think that I'm good at this. I, I, I. I'm not sure that I there is a complete continuum between today and the very first time I ever tried this material. And the continuum is that holy shit this is really hard to do. Did you have a time in your career? You said you've been making glass for how long has it been now? 45 years. That's incredible. Have you had a time in the past 45 years? Like, where do you think your confidence peaked? At what age and like, and how many years experience at, at blowing glass do you feel like you were at your, your confidence maximum that you thought you like had it all figured out? I think my, my maximum confidence probably came when I was 22 and living in a teepee and I, <laughs> and I just figured out how to do it. What's neat about glass blowing is that it's so freaking diff- difficult to do that um, any success at all makes you feel like you're on top of the world. <laughs> and so, truly, when I started to blow glass, I just thought I was—I thought I was amazing that I could make anything out of this molten liquid that just—it's—it's it's just insanely hot. It's like twenty-three hundred degrees, or. T- anywhere between 21 and 2300 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a liquid. It flows and drips like honey. Uh, it's, it's, it will burn you. And, and the fact that you can make anything at all with it uh, is, it, it gives you this rush, this insane feeling of accomplishment. And I think I felt that from the first day that I did it, although looking back, I realized that I was a complete idiot. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, I <laughs> I feel the same way with so many things in my life. But it's uh, it's good. You need to have that idiot experience. Um, and 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 you know, forty five years later, truthfully, I almost feel the same way. I think there's some stuff that I know how to do, and and I feel very confident. But every now and then, uh, the glass gods straighten me right out, you know, and <laughs> prove to me that I really know very little. Yeah, they humble you very quickly. Exactly. Uh, 
Interesting. So uh, let's go ahead and wind this thing down, Josh, and give people some advice if they would like to try glass blowing. So any sort of advice that you would like to give, please do. And at first, if you could just let us know, is this the type of thing that we could just like pick up and start doing in our own house? Or do you have to have like a, a proper facility to do this in? It's, it's probably not something that you want to do at home because it, it's, it's just a project to get a glass furnace hot enough it might be something you could do in your garage if you, um, but but the better way to do it, if you want to try glass blowing, the best way to do it is to sign up for a course. And it's easy enough to find there are glass studios all over the country and lots and lots of them. And uh, around here, there's a place called Snow Farm School in Williamsburg, Massachusetts. It's this fantastic school, which you could, t- you could take a, a weekend intensive workshop or a week or two weeks long and you can get a taste for it. And, and, and you may just say, this is so not for me. Um, or it may pique your interest and, and, and you may decide to continue and uh, Corning Museum of Glass in Corning, New York has a, a great studio and they teach year round. And, uh, but the best way to start is to take a course and just learn some basics and, and 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 try it that way at least to see whether it's something you want to try all right love it good advice josh thank you so much for coming on the show you've been such a great guest and uh and yeah your stories are great we really appreciate it thank you well all right well i should also i should also just mention that and it's kind of really just a shout out to a person um that i met I, I met my wife because she called a wrong telephone number in 1990 and <laughs> And uh, when I first met her, she was uh, she was a, a research chemist for the Air Force, and she, um, you know, when I, I, I mean, I literally met her because of a wrong phone number, but we met in person sometime after that, and uh, she told me that she was applying for what seemed like a most ridiculous job imaginable, and and. Uh, I didn't make fun of her. I thought it was kind of cool that she was applying. And and sure enough, out of uh, something like 3,000 applicants, they chose three women in 1992, and she joined the uh, 1992 NASA astronaut class. And uh, That's amazing. And, and so to, I, w- I had already been making planets by that time, but... When she did her first space shuttle launch in 1995, um, she has brought back the most amazing photographs of our Earth, which are um, which are inspiration for me for making of my planets. And uh, but but not only that, but being sort of connected vicariously to NASA has been a total inspiration in terms of the telescopes and Hubble and all the imagery and everything else that goes on. Wow. Well, huge shout out to your wife. That's amazing. And what a, like, what a great conversationalist you must have been back in the day <laughs> to be able to marry a woman based off of a wrong phone number. That's incredible. That's another whole story for another whole, whole, whole uh, time. Well, maybe your wife can tell it. You will have to uh, refer her to be on the show. I would love to hear her stories about being an astronaut. That's so incredible. Yeah. Sometime. Cool. Josh, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Blake, it was great. 
Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you told a friend about it to help spread the word about the show. And if you've been listening to the show for a little while and been enjoying yourself, I would really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That's a way that a lot of people learn about new podcasts. And the more reviews and the better reviews that a podcast gets, the more people that that podcast ends up in front of. So that would be a really awesome way to help the show. And if you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, yeah, that's all fine and good, Blake, but... uh what are you going to do to help me out? Well, how about being a guest on Half Hour Intern? That is right. You could totally be a guest on this show. So if you have been sitting there listening to this show and thinking to yourself, you know what? I do this totally awesome thing for a living. Or you know what? I have this awesome hobby that I'm really, really passionate about and I would love to tell people about it. Go to halfhourintern.com and click on the Submit Your Ideas link at the top of the page. And through there, there will be forms that you can fill out to get in touch with me about the possibility of coming on the show and being a guest yourself on the Half Hour Intern Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening.